right, and we're live. Lori, welcome. Hi. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing awesome. Yeah? It's Friday. It's Friday. Woohoo! It's Friday <laughs> afternoon. It's after work. Yeah. It doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> this is and, what we work all week for. And we get to chat here for a little bit. I'm looking yeah. forward to it. I've always enjoyed chatting with you. Well, thanks. Me too. I, the feeling is definitely mutual. Yeah. Mutual admiration. <laughs> yes. So what are you doing these days? Uh, more, more than I think I possibly can handle, but I'm working with Faith Comes by Hearing in the communications and marketing department. And what do you do there? I am the manager of an incredibly creative team that produces all of our um, communications across, well, you know what I'm doing there, but for this, <laughs> I start saying, can you, you probably know more about it than I do. That was a... Um an ignorant question to pull out information. <laughs> okay. I We cover all of the communications within the office, uh, within our partnerships out in the field in 190 countries, and we do all of the marketing that bring in uh, donations to send God's word out to the world in audio. Very cool. And so I manage a creative team of writers and digital experts in marketing and graduate. Um, graphic designers, and then one heck of an administrator who's, she's like a beast that runs she all the guys. Beast. Yeah. And I work with an amazing boss and um, we make a lot of decisions about our messaging and where we're going with that. One of the questions that I always got, uh, you know, when, when I was managing a marketing team, the marketing team that you're managing at Faith Comes By Hearing. So I'm, for everybody, I took... Your old job. Charles's place. Yep. Yeah. I took your old job. You no one could job. take your place. <laughs> well, thanks. I appreciate that. From one salesman to another. There you go. That's perfect. <laughs> um, when I was doing that, I, I got the question a lot. Why does a nonprofit ministry need a marketing team? Mm. And that question is, I mean, if you think about it, it's a pretty logical question, but it's actually born out of ignorance in terms of like, why would a church do marketing? Uh, mm -hmm. it, it sounds like such a silly concept, but in this day and age, you really can't survive unless you're doing some kind of marketing, was my opinion. How do you handle it? Was that, that your answer? That was. I mean, you know, the, here, here's the deal. is all. It, let, let's take a church, for example. If the church does absolutely no marketing, then they're just essentially taking themselves out of the game because everyone around them is going to continue doing marketing and they're going to crush the church. Because that messaging and what's in front of you all the time, that's really what what we respond to. Mm -hmm. That's why when you go out into the world, for one day you see 5,000 advertisements in a day. It's not because Coca-Cola likes spending billions of dollars on advertising. They think it's fun to do all this stuff. It's because they know that even Coca-Cola, if they're not in front of the customer all the time, they're going to become irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And guess what? If they stop spending money on marketing, who's going to jump in there? Pepsi. Right. I mean, Pepsi's going to double down if Coca-Cola steps out the game. So Duh. here's what I hear you saying. It's about being relevant because it, you you have to do what the culture and what the current, I, I don't want to say culture again, the, the culture and just what people are accustomed to, that we've been taught as people when we see advertising, we've been taught to, this is this is what we buy. This is what we do. This is, this how, is how we respond. This is how we get our information. This is how we make our decisions. That's I'm right. not saying it's a bad thing, but it's how it's done. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's a very good answer. Mine, because I previously worked with donors. Sure. Of faith comes by hearing, and so that is a question and a hurdle 
that we had to jump over together often. And I like to say, because this is the way that the the culture or the consumer or the people of today are used to getting information, this is the way that we glorify the Lord. If we aren't putting out what he is doing and we're just keeping it in, then we're not giving other people the opportunity to, number one, know what he's doing in the world today because there are a lot of mediums they can't. Maybe even churches are not all aware of what he's doing through his word worldwide, yeah. right? So we've got to show what, what he's doing and then that is the invitation for people to join us. Yeah. So if we're not putting it out there. And I, I would take that a step further. I would actually say it's even a disservice to not do that. Yeah. Because what Ex- about the people who want to become a part of them? And it's not just, it's not just Christianity. Um, I mean, you could say, take that same principle and apply it towards a water organization. Mm-hmm. You could take that a, mm-hmm. a gay rights activa- mm-hmm. activist organization. If they feel so strongly, so passionately about what they're promoting, why would they not try and share that with everybody that they can? Exactly. Because yep. you can't further your cause. Not by yourself. No. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. It takes it takes more more effort. Plus, I mean, even if you could, it's still a disservice not to allow other people that opportunity at that point, you might as well just be a for-profit business and try and crush the market. Right, right. Good point. And I, I also believe, biblically, I mean, because we are a Christian nonprofit. Mm-hmm. That's what we are. So biblically, there is a promise for those who have the heart of generosity. Give and it will be given. So I believe that I invite people into a promise of God. Nice. To experience a promise of God. That's awesome. Thank you. So, how did you get here? Um, let's let's back up a little bit. Where? How what, far? Well, how far <laughs> do you need to go? I what? was born in. <laughs> uh oh. Are you sure it was nine? No, never mind. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so so where I mean, what where would you say your journey to get here as a marketing professional? Where did that part start? Hmm. I was raised in a family where um, my mother's parents were entrepreneurs in the restaurant and um, hotel business. And my father, um, when I was a child, he, he'd been in sales, started his first business. And over the course of my growing up, we had um, three restaurants a furniture store, an importing company from uh, Taiwan and China, and um, a lighting retail store, a lighting wholesale store. So you never saw them? (laughs) No. We talked profit margins around the dinner table. Okay. That's how I got here. In my father's office hung a sign that said, well, he actually had two signs. Uh, One of them said, life is not a free lunch. And the other one says, nothing happens till you sell something. Mm. That's how I came to marketing. So I was raised, both brothers went on to open their own businesses and become extremely successful. And my parents ran their own businesses till he died two years ago. Wow. Yeah. And then my mother retired. She's 80. So they they were rocking and rolling. My goodness! Right up until their eighties, and um, we just you just don't 
you just don't stop work mm -hmm. and you don't stop selling and you're always finding a need and filling it. Yeah. That was his mantra. Was that challenging for you growing up? Because it, it's almost one of those things where, you know, I, I'm, I'm very much that same mentality. I have a hard time turning off that switch. So I have to make actual hard, I have to draw a line in the sand and say, okay, I'm not going to work at this point. I'm going to hang out with my son or I'm going to hang out with my daughter, or my wife or whatever. I, I have to draw those hard boundaries to make sure that I don't do that because I could just work constantly. I could too. Yeah. But was that hard growing up uh, from the from the perspective of a child? Yes, probably of the three children. Uh, the two brothers were always bought in, um, especially the younger one, were always bought in and involved in the family business, and I was rather reluctant. I was probably the creative, more creative one, a um, little less responsible maybe. And as I'm saying that, I remember my older brother getting in trouble all the time when he had long hair and a guitar. But um, it, I vowed I never wanted to have my own business because of the hours that they work and because of the lack of um, fun you know, because when we took vacations, they were always work-related. Mm -hmm. Like if when they had an antique store, we'd have to shop, stop and shop at antiques. When they had a jewelry store, we'd have to do wholesale buying. Um, so I had decided early on I'd, that's not what I wanted to do. I actually wanted to be a choreographer and, and had been involved in dance. But somehow, as I got older, and I left the business and went just to work, oh gosh, in my early 20s, just just a job, you know, and just got a job. And it didn't take too long for me to realize I don't want just a job. <laughs> because being an entrepreneur or being in the family business certainly had its perks. Mm -hmm. And um, and I found out that I actually did have business ideas and ideas how we could better things. And I met, was met with resistance, of course. And yep. so coming from an entrepreneurial background, um, I'm like, oh, wait, what is that? What do you mean no? <laughs> so I went running back to the business in my late 20s and stayed with the family business until until I bought the business, the last business um, that I was involved with, with the family. I bought it back from a bank who had called a note. Okay. And so I went to the bank, got a loan from the same bank, Bought the inventory back, but bought the best of the inventory back, right? Reopened the store, hired my parents back in, married my husband, and um, some point in our marriage, we both decided that we were destined for Christian ministry. Mm. And well, then we both went into Christian ministry, and I've been there ever since. What was the business that you bought? A lighting store. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, and what and did moved you end up it. doing with it? I'm sorry? What did you do with it? I tripled the net worth in three years and sold it. Dang. That's, that's a, I bet the bank was incredibly happy with you. Yeah. But, you know, it's location, location, location. We changed locations. We went into a, a more vibrant market. Um, I moved from being an administrator to sales. What you love. Uh-huh. And, and what we knew, you know, it, Sometimes it takes someone that's an owner or that's personally invested to be able to sell with passion. Yeah. And so I went into sales. So who, who owned it when the note was My issued? dad did. Okay. My dad did. Here's the thing. I don't remember the year, and you might can help me with that. 
it was probably he can look stuff up too. In the mid eighties, there was a crash sometime. Um, look up uh, mid eighties recession or yeah stock market crash. So what he was he had been involved. That's, that's it. That should get you there. He'd been involved. He had a, Nin- a line October of nineteenth, nineteen eighty seven. Hmm. October nineteenth is my wife's birthday. Is it? Yeah. All right. So that he had been, he'd had a line of credit at the bank. Okay, and I, and he coached me through this. This is the scenario. He had a line of credit. His officer called. You know, we this huge recession hit. Sales were going down, but the bank was calling notes on other customers. And I don't think a lot of people realize that the bank can do that. Yeah. Yeah. On any any loan that you have with them. It's, yeah. yeah. They can make the call. So he credit got a card call. Credit card debt, everything. Yes. I mean, it's like, wow, you have $17,000 in credit card debt, and guess what? We need it back now. Tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> Tomorrow. Yeah. And so his officer at the time called and gave him a heads up and said, hey, Listen, this is happening with a lot of our um, customers, and we're I you're on the you're on the table. I've seen I've seen this your company, and this at this point, he was doing some importing too, and so there was a lot of, of our our money was in that, and mm-hmm. then we had this one retail lighting store where I was situated, and he just started working on a plan. And so the day that the call came, he called me in his office and he said, I want you to go home and put on a business suit. I want you to carry a briefcase and I want you to go make offers on at least 50% of the inventory. And I want you to tell them that you're the answer. And I was like, okay. And so we went and I asked them, um, what did they think they could get, you know, on a, a crash sale, you know, just if they foreclosed and they just put the inventory out and said, there's a three-day sale, come buy it. And they said, well, we think we can get 50 to 75 cents on the dollar. Now, that right there is a smart mar- uh, sales technique that I've learned over the years. It's, it's I wouldn't say always, but 90% of the time, it's better not to throw out an offer. Instead, you just ask the question, what 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 do you think you could afford uh, what do you think the service is valued at to you, uh, or or in your case, you know, mm-hmm. what do you think you could get if you were to sell this in the way that you're really forced to right now? Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, and so when they said fifty to seventy five cents on the dollar, I know the market; they don't. Mm-hmm. And we had some old inventory, and I said I actually think it's more like five cents. Five cents. Wow. And and they so were they were shocked. And I said, but I'm here to offer you 25 cents on the dollar. And I had a signed agreement and another line of credit when I walked out the door. But, you know, we know what we're doing in that industry. They don't, Mm -hmm. right? But I didn't buy the whole inventory back. I only bought like 60% of it back and I cherry picked. Yeah. And then my dad had already said we need to move. I'm like, all right, we're moving. And so, but at that point I owned the store and we started over when we put me in sales, took me out of the office doing accounting, and I went into sales. And um, eventually, we built the whole thing back up. Mom and dad ended up moving to Houston to work for her brother, and we sold the company, and 
Like I said, tripled the net worth in three years. So what do you think were the factors that led to you being able to triple the, the revenue in three years? Sales. Sales? Mm-hmm. So that, that part was lacking something. before that? Yeah. I we, had, we were living in a boom time, and we were the only lighting store in our area, and we, all of the builders were coming to us, and the market was coming to us. And then after this crash... There was no market to come to us. You had to go out and find it. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. Got in the car and went out and hunted down builders and got them to contract with us and use us for all their lighting needs. Mm. So it was was going from a retail mentality to a wholesale aggression. Sure. Well, and then the business would be much more consistent because contractors are, I mean, if they're not buying lights, they're not working. Because mm-hmm. they don't have anything to install the lights into, right? So you have to go find, yeah, you have to go find the people that are working. Mm-hmm. And then you have to be competitive yeah. because right at that point, they're owning the market, right? Yep. So, um, yeah. So from there, uh, we worked that, when I sold it, um, the people that bought the business wanted to hire me. And we went into a non-compete contract my, and my parents moved and... I lasted um, about six months. What was your contract for? Um, well, I couldn't stay in the industry for five years. Mm. I was in a non-compete for five years. So when I walked away from them at six months, I was walking away from that career. Interesting. Because I couldn't take a five-year break. I mean, I couldn't work in the state of Texas. I could have gone to another state. Sure. But I was married and eight months pregnant with my middle child. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and soon after that, I entered the nonprofit world. Um, now, you went to work for Faith Comes by Hearing, but you were a donor representative at that time, right? I started as a writer. Okay. that's I started in... Charles, you and I were in the communications department together, right? Or were you... No, I think I, think I was there after, after you had... Moved, moved to, to donor, donor side. Yeah. Okay, okay. Well, that s- was that was January of two thousand nine for me. Okay, I started in 06. Yeah. Okay, that makes I was a donor rep. Okay, yeah. okay. Well, do you want that story? Yeah. How I came to Faith Comes by Hearing. Well, I'm I'm interested in you. You left Faith Comes by Hearing for a while. Yeah. So you you worked there and then you left to start a bed and breakfast in Texas. So you That's moved back from Albuquerque to Texas. Yes. And now you're back. Yeah. What happened there? Actually, I was traveling a lot uh, before I left for Faith Comes by Hearing, and my son graduated from high school, and I missed a lot of things. Mm. And so when my daughter became a senior in high school, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to travel this year. So you missed a lot of things because you were doing so because much travel? I was travel. out okay. all the time. How the much road. were you traveling at that point? Every other week, three to four days. Oof, but on a, a senior year of a kid, you know, things happen almost every day oh, from yeah. December to May. And so um, I just... I always, and, I always tell my kids a lot can change in a year. You have no idea from, you know, the beginning to the beginning of the year to the end of the year, your, your whole world. There was a book, uh, one of my favorite books. My, my favorite author is Stephen King. Oh, and he a, scares me. Oh, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> he keeps it puts me to sleep. Yeah. I can watch Pet Cemetery and I'm out. My wife hates it. She hates horror movies. I love them. They calm me down. They were, I just, I don't know why it's weird. You really don't know why? 
Uh, well, I mean, as a kid, my cousin, uh, she was kind of morbid, and so she liked you know pet cemetery and, and dark things. Um, so it was just for me, it was just very comfortable. Uh, I, I, I mean, it just it never scared me. I always realized that it's all fake and made up. So it was so just, it was entertaining. I lived in the ghetto though too. Okay. So like for me, you know, there there was prostitutes and gangbangers. I mean, that that was the real threat for me. I actually used to wear a hairnet. Uh, yeah, I, I, I had baggy jeans. They were hanging down to my, halfway down to my knees. I think I remember you telling me this. It's coming back to me because you cleaned up so good. I was extremely well, surprised. <laughs> you know, I, again, a lot of things can change in a year. You know, you go from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Uh, it's it's incredible. But literally, oh, um, so in that book, um, the, the author, or I'm sorry, the character keeps saying life turns on a dime. And that's very true. I found that to be very true. It's, it's, you know, one moment you're cruising along and it's, it's great. All of a sudden, you know, it's not, or vice versa, you, you know, everything's like awful. And then all of a sudden one day you're like, Hey, it's, it's all back to good. Nothing's guaranteed. No, nothing's, nothing's guaranteed. guaranteed. And that, that really frustrates me with young people too, uh, especially teenagers that are in high school. You know, they don't have enough life experience at that point to really understand that, you know, and I'll be honest, high school for me sucked. I hated all the emotions, the way I felt, like just emotionally and everything that was you going were, on. Well, you were you were I, a baggy panted boy. Well, no, at that point I was in a pretty good pretty good place. I was living with my sister, going to the best high school in in uh, New Mexico in terms of rated for education, which is probably like the least for the rest of the states, but it was really good for New Mexico, and. It was just, I, I just didn't enjoy that time. I, I had a lot of uh, emotional turmoil personally. Um, but I, I think that there's a lot of kids out there, they have that same thing, they struggle, and then they think this is it, it's never going to get any better. But they don't have enough life experience to realize, oh, it actually does get better. You just have to give it enough time. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I took you off course, but. Well, now I don't know where I was. Um, so you were. Uh, <laughs> let's oh, saying how with my daughter. Yes I, yes, I stayed home. Yep. So I took a job with a, a local school in Albuquerque and uh, to create their development department and created their development department. And, and what do you mean by development department? It was a, it was a Christian school, so... Uh, in terms of monetary development? Trying yes, to, monetary. Okay, fundraising? Yes, fundraising create a fundraising model for okay. them. And so I did that her senior year. And um, then I had I did a few other things in between because I left Faith Comes by Hearing so that I wasn't traveling so I could stay home with her. Then the reason we went to Texas was not to open a bed and breakfast, but my older brother had cancer and from diagnosis... Uh, at six months, he died almost six months to the day later. And he was the custodial parent of two college-age girls. Mm. And so um, the family was kind of gathering. Their biological mother, which he'd been married to before, but they had divorced, died as well. So From they had no parents. cancer or? She was in an accident. Mm. But... Um, the girls had no parents. And so it was a, we got this kind of all hands on deck call. Like we need you guys to come back. And See, and that's one of those situations right there where you, you, as a kid, as a teenager, you're thinking, I don't have anybody. I mean, life just isn't even worth living right now. Why would I want to go on 
but you came and, and, and you're getting there, but you came in and stepped in and I'm sure helped, but you, you continue. But you I, know, my, my point is, is that things do get better. They do turn around. Oh, and yes. And the, and the girls that are young women now, because um, they've, they've graduated from school, they're adults, they're in relationships, mm-hmm. they're independent, living on their own. Now they do work for the younger brother. And well, actually one of them works for my son. And he owns his own business, of course, <laughs> following the family craziness. And then um, the other the other one works for my brother. So they've stayed in the family business. But here's the thing. It's not to ride. We rode in thinking it was going to look like this, that we were going to rescue these girls and we were going to pull them into our families. And by college age, you've pretty... You've got a track of what you want in life. Some do. These two did. And they had already become rather independent. And what we became was support when you need it. Mm. A talk when you need it. A dinner when you need it. Making sure we're still all together on the holidays. And um, so my role wasn't near as, um, as often as I thought it involved, would be when we moved. Involved is a good word, yeah. But, um, gosh, when they did need or they did want to talk or we were together, I realized how precious that was, mm-hmm. how terribly precious. And so I, moving back to Albuquerque, I, I miss them as much as I miss my own grown children. Um, but, yeah, so it was just kind of a let's all just gather, let's just be available, and let's just, do what needs to be done when we come across it. Mm -hmm. And my brother hired, the younger brother hired them in his business. And so they were always stayed very connected to the family. And so they're doing great. One thing when you were talking about, we just don't know, you know, it's just not guaranteed. One thing that the younger one, her name is Casey. And one thing that she says is that, you know, when you're young and you're in high school or you're in those early days in college, how your parents get on your nerves. Mm -hmm. And she said, when my friends say, oh, my mother, she's calling me too much. Or, oh, you know, my dad won't give me that loan. Or, oh, they're getting on my nerves. Or, oh, they want me to come home for the weekend. Casey says, man, I tell them, don't appreciate your parents every single day because you have no idea what it's like yeah. to not have parents. It's true. And so these girls are very fortunate. I mean, they, he took care of them financially, you know, and, and they, they've lived lives. They've gone, like I said, school relationships, but um, they'll definitely tell you they've, there's a big hole in their lives. Oh. There's a big missing part and they miss their dad. Yeah, and that that influence. There's that's a critical time, you know. And and when we're talking about the church, I don't think the church. It's getting better. It's getting better, but I don't think historically they've done a very good job at handling that age group. You know, they're real good. They've got youth programs, so they've got you know uh, elementary age, middle school age, high school age, and then you've got an adult program. But I think there's that intermediate area where you know you have college aged people who. Mm-hmm. They don't really want to go and, and hang out with all the old farts and, and regular <laughs> service, um, nor do they want to hang out with all the teenagers. I mean, right. so they, they end up leaving the church, they feel. And, and I, I also believe that everyone needs a tribe. You know, you need a community of people, mm. a, a community of friends that you can trust mm. on, trust and work with and talk to. 
And I think that a lot of high school students lose that immediately when high school ends and then they go into college, which is completely foreign, completely challenging, completely overwhelming, you know, for some, not, not all, of course, but very overwhelming. And you've got all these stresses and you're trying to figure out what you want to do with your life. And, and you really have, in a lot of cases, no one to really fall back on. Yeah, so I think the church could do better in that. Yeah. And you're working so hard to become an adult. Yeah. And some some just aren't ready. And that's that brings up a thought to me. But before I go to that thought, I want to say that my middle child, Sam Westlake, is... Shout out to Sam. Shout out to Sam. Um, he's in Colorado right now. He, is, he, no, I won't say that. he leads a young adults, college age to early married, Sunday school class gathering head of... To do exactly what you're talking about, kind of lost ages in there where even the young adults who have gotten married and having children are really still struggling to got to fit in in the church. Uh, you know, they um, it seems that there's a pull away from the church. Well, there's, there's some in- interesting facts. And I don't know if we can look those up. I've wanted to, oh, yeah. but I've never had a son back. that would sit with a computer and look things <laughs> up for me. But. I read somewhere something about this, and I, I believe I can say that I'm seeing this with my own eyes, that the generations whose children are becoming adults, okay, leaving college, getting married, starting careers, that generation of parent, let's just say maybe 45 to 60, okay, is pulling out of the church. The, the people that are 45 to 60 are pulling out? And why, why do you think that is? I hope there's not tons of people <laughs> watching this, but my theory I, is. I hope there are. Yeah, maybe there will be because I always say controversy attracts listeners. That's true. And readers. And, and, and polarization, uh, that's definitely one. If you take one end of the spectrum, I take the other. That's, that's definitely yeah, one. I'm so uncomfortable with that. <laughs> I can talk with you about other people, but go. I don't want to spar with you. Hey, we can, we can talk about some other people. Okay, let's talk about the church. No, but okay, yeah, continue. <laughs> let's talk about the church. And then you can make a list right there of the other people, and we can just see if we can cover some of those folks. But I believe that, and this is just Laurie speak, okay? I believe that the... Advent of the megachurch was exciting and became very seeker-friendly. And we saw this huge growth, huge buildings, huge programs, and it almost from that point morphed into a cultural thing instead of a spiritual thing, kind of like in the old days when everybody was just a Christian because, and because they were taking up some of the social gaps as other things were going awry in culture, they were, they actually began to create their own culture, but beyond just the tribe. Okay. A, a, a robotic, if I can even go to say, and I believe that as people like my age, we were so enthusiastic about church and so happy about the evangelical movement. Learning, I was very fortunate to be in a Bible church where I learned to handle the Word of God for myself. But what I saw in other church movements is people never really learned to handle it themselves. They just relied on a pastor. And, and it's no fault of a pastor, but when people just rely on you and you just continue to spoon food, feed them, you're not building a discipleship program. 
Yeah, well, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier before we started. Um, you know, I, I, I very heavily believe in a leader-leader mentality in terms of leadership. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, if you have a mega church, and we'll take, let's pick on one, for example, you know, the Calvary model is very much, their model is very much that the pastor has a lot of control. Uh, mm-hmm. Almost, and maybe this is maybe this is ignorance on my part, but it feels like the pastor has total control. Now I'm I'm a big fan of Calvary in general. I like the teachings. I like a lot of the pastors. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite pastors was Bob Goy, who started Calvary of Fort Lauderdale. I can't tell you how many sermons I listened to listened to from him. I watched a lot of his videos. Um, you know, he started the church in 1985, and then it was what 2004, maybe somewhere after that, 2005. Um, he ended up leaving the church, and it wasn't by his choice mm. he was pushed out and it's mm-hmm. it's public record you know he was at that point cheating on his wife um, with ladies in the church he had a porn addiction in, in a traditional church model I don't think a pastor has that much control to really get a, that much power to really get away with those kind of things at least and not be seen you know I'm familiar with some other situations that have happened similar to that in smaller churches mm-hmm. and they were handled more discreetly I would say um, which for better or worse, I, I don't know. We are piranhas at the end of the day, the masses, we, we love our daughter laundry. Yeah. Yeah, we do. And gossip, gossip spreads really, really fast. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that that model, it, it gives one person too much control sometimes. And, and then, you know, if they don't properly distribute that amongst them, t- their team, you know, that's a choice that they make. And, and it's, it's crippling to the entire organization. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Well, I believe that as as the church became that, right? Mm-hmm. As it became, let's just get them in the door. We have programs to fill. You know, the the leader has created these subsets, right? And we're not really making disciples that go out, right? We've just created, I'm going to use this word loosely, entertainment, Sure. Yeah. It, uh, some of them feel very much like a production. Even if it's a good teaching, mm-hmm. I'm still enjoying it and being entertained. I'm not saying you shouldn't, right? but I'm saying people maybe are not coming to learn to go out and duplicate, but maybe they want to be involved in a program because that's part of the culture and that's how it keeps. This is not absolute and across so, the board. So where do you think that line is? Because there's there's got to be enough entertainment, enough draw to really pull people in and make them want to... Or, allow them to enjoy the time that they're spending rather than um, um, avoiding it, feeling like, you know, See, it's I a, think that's just it. We haven't a found chore. the line. Yeah. I, that's why I think my age group is not, not leaving the Lord, but leaving the church model. Did you find anything? What, what did you want him to search? I, I lost the... Like middle-aged people leaving the church. I know there's a lot of figures out there for millennials not buying the Kool-Aid, but um, I just like, I know so many couples my age, so many of the people that support Faith Comes by Hearing who are not active in a church. Most are, but the percentages I would find shocking. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think would shock other people because we haven't found that line because the church has continued that um, get them in, get them in, get them in, get them in model and built up so big, they've got to keep replicating that. And I think as people like I have lived through that, 
for several years. And once the kids are up and gone, and I'm going right back into that, and I, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm not getting newer, deeper teaching. I'm being encouraged to show up at a soup line, and that's great. Yeah, that's great. But I'm not really being challenged in my faith. I might be challenged in my time. And what What do you think it takes to challenge you in your faith? What what kind of things do you see that a church could do to make that? I really don't know the answer for that because I keep we've been shopping uh, in Texas, um, and and just not. You're going to buy church now. <laughs> just joking. Turn it into sale if I could sell That's Jesus. Right. Um, oh, there's there's plenty of pastors selling <laughs> Jesus, Jesus or cloths that Jesus might have touched yeah. or sneezed on at one point. I mean, it's that might be what you're looking for. I actually saw I saw this uh, top ten. Well, that's really top 10 reasons young adults drop out of church. That's the only thing. I saw this the stupid commercial the other day and I and I I don't mean stupid loosely. It was stupid. Okay. It was a pastor on on TV and they were selling holy water packets. And oh. I I thought it was a joke, you know, cuz they've got these new commercials where they make this absurd thing that that they're selling and they they back up and they're, you know, they they show you that it's a joke. And I was like, I was waiting for that punchline. It never came. The commercial just ended. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You're seriously selling holy water packets? And th- but you know what? Somebody was buying. Somebody was. You wouldn't be selling if TV somebody wasn't buying. Are super expensive. I, and yeah. so they had to be, yeah. I don't know. Charles, you tell me. If, uh, let, me let me just pose the question to you. Why would you think that, of course, I'm past middle age. I keep referring to myself as middle Sorry. age, but I'm past. Hey, we, we all have delusions to some extent. Okay. Well, why would you think that people have grown children are choosing not? Because you're an insightful guy. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think that a lot of people go to church for their kids um, in the same way that a lot of people stay together for their kids. And, you know, obviously I'm, I'm not a big proponent of divorce uh, at all. But I, I also know that if you're miserable and you hate your, your relationship with your spouse— Everybody knows that around you. It's not mm-hmm. something that you're hiding, even if you think you are. It's like the the people that are ad- addicted to drugs, and we've talked a little bit about that. You know, they they think no one else around them understands, but you know, then they come out of the bathroom and they're, you know, obviously high. You're like everybody knows that you are. You're the only one that you're that thinks you aren't. I think that parents who so along the same lines with kids, I think they. They hate each other. They hate the relationship. They want out. They want to do something different. And there's all this aggression. How do you expect the kids don't notice? Hmm. So or it affect it not affect them or not affect. I mean, they're gonna almost take, in a more negative way. Definitely in a yeah. more negative because because they're going to take that same behavior and take that, that into model. their relationships. Mm-hmm. When they, and now even if they have a great spouse that they love, they still treat them in the same way that their parents treated. Right, because that's what they know. Yeah. So I I think that's worse than just getting a divorce personally. But um, back to the church, I think a lot of parents go to church for the kids. Mm. And then when the kids go out go out and leave the house, they say, hey, we don't need church anymore. We don't need to go regularly. And it's just like everything. I mean, if, if you get it, like let's take fitness, for example. If you get into the habit of going to the gym five days a week and you do that for three years, it's not even a challenge anymore. You just get up and you do it. You don't even have to think about it. Ugh. But if you take three months off, guess what? You're going to have a hard time getting back. Probably. I mean, you know, everybody's different, but it was like that. Uh, there's, there's this guy that, um, his story is fit to fat to fit. 
So he's a personal trainer. He did a documentary and he went from, you know, being super, super ripped and over a six month course, he got fat so that he could learn what it's like to train his clients. So he gained 70 pounds of weight in six months. I mean, which is terrible on your body, of course. And then the next six months he spent getting back into shape. Well, he did it he did a good job, but that, that same, um, I lost my train of thought. I don't know where I was going with that. Um, um Oh, 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 for him, um, you know, he had, he had spent, he had spent some time, uh, just eating whatever he wanted. He got fast food, he got burgers whenever he wanted. And he realized that the, the hardest part to getting back in shape was actually that mental barrier because now he actually craved some of that food and he wanted some of that food. Once he got past that mental barrier of, okay, I I've got to do this to be able to, to make this journey everything else fell into place. Okay. So in the church mm-hmm. with adults leaving. Yep. So you're saying once we just go, um, we then it's, then it's, it's hard to get back, back into in. the habit of going on a regular basis. Well, here, and I, especially if you go to an old person church, cause they're boring. I mean, uh, you know, not, <laughs> not to everybody, but to me, they are. Define where, what is the line of old? Uh, 10 years, 20 years older than whatever you are. Okay, good. That was good. Okay, yeah. good. So I would that say. That was a really good. I would say you're what, a salesman. 42 or so. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Well, here's, here's what I feel at my age, that I'm in a place to give, not, not necessarily at the soup line, although if that's what God calls me to do and asks mm-hmm. me to do, I'm going to go. Sure. But I feel at a point where I'm ready to mentor and pour into the lives that will be here after me. That's good, but that's the that's that same cycle of life. I mean, if if tomorrow you found out that your husband cheated on you and he was leaving you for this other woman, you would probably not be in a place to help other people through that anymore. That's yeah. But so I mean that's because I would be hunting him down. Well, yeah, I mean, and and you my could whole a, life, my whole you being. could always start a prison ministry <laughs> <laughs> or a sniper type thing where you have people follow your husband. But no, just so you know, Steve, don't let that happen. No, he knows. Okay. He knows. There's yeah, there's some things he can get away with, but <laughs> <laughs> but not that one. But not that is the line. But okay, but I think. And I'm taking this from my own children's perspective. Sam, I'm going to have to mention the other two kids. Go for it. What's their name? Sam and Mesa. There's Sam and Mesa, and then there's Ross. Hi, Ross. Ross, and hi, Mesa. She's amazing, too. They're all amazing. But Sam... Who's your favorite? Oh, Sam would say he was. No, who would you say? I I love them all. all They're very unique. And the last thing I want to do is sit here and talk about my kids. Yeah. But I have a redhead, a brunette, wanna, and a blonde. I just want to pick on you and have you choose a Put favorite. me on the spot. Yeah. Um, yeah. They all have their weaknesses, and they all have their strengths. Good answer. But Sam's wife is is an amazing young Christian mother with, with two kids. And her very much younger sister lives with them. So I've got... Sam and his wife at 27 with a, a four-year-old, an almost two-year-old, and a senior in high school living with them. And um, Alyssa was a converted uh, or 
chose to follow Christ, I'll put it that way, um, late in her teens. And this was all kind of new to her. In college, she went to a Christian school, um, and she has an amazing amount of depth and insight. But she desired that someone, according to uh, Titus 2, that an older woman mentor her. And she asked um, different ladies to do that and either got told, I'm just not in a place, I'm too busy, or no response, no follow-up response. And I think that says a lot about my generation. We talk a lot about the millennial generation. Uh, so let me, I want to I jump over to, I attended a church in Dallas. I can't remember the name of it. It'll come to me. But it was a, a church wall-to-wall, full, incredible of young, young people. The way they worshiped the Lord was very uh, different from the way that I worshiped. The music was different. It was almost like they had a mosh pit Mm -hmm. and the jumping, and they came in all kinds of clothing, and they looked real different, and it was spectacular. And to watch them so wholeheartedly praise God. So my theory is that that generation, there are no fence riders, Mm -hmm. that they are either passionately going to follow the Lord, and they're going to do it with all their heart and with everything that they have, or they're going to go the other way and say that's that's crap. I don't want any part of it. And so what I believe is that my generation actually ha- was conditioned to be that lazy, mm. that lazy generation. And we were okay with that as we were raising our children in church. You know, that's interesting that you say that. And I, I can see that. That's that's very insightful, I think. But I, I also think that applies towards our generation in general, you know, you hear it all the time. Millennials are lazy. They don't want to work. Um, and I think the millennials kind of think the opposite, where the older generation is lazy. And they, in a different way, though, I mean, they're willing to get out and they're willing to do physical labor, but they don't really want to apply their brain and work 70, 80 hours. I mean, some do, some don't. But I think I think the genera- my generation feels the opposite. Um, are you Gen X? So I'm I'm 33. I was uh, no, I'm not. Uh, yes, I am. I think I'm right on the border. When when was the year for Generation X? That's always weird because there's no. Um, but what year 61. was Generation X born in? 61. Here, 61. What? 61 to 8. Well, I'm definitely not. No, no, that's not right. What, type in what generation was Generation X born in. Or what year was Generation X born in? What year were you born? 1985. (laughs) Baby boomers. Baby boomers were born between 1944 and 1964. They're currently between the ages of 55 and 75. Uh, Let's see. Generation X was 1965 to 1979. Generation Y was 1980 to 1994. So you're a millennial? I guess I am. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, so you have That's the view of me. millennial. Somewhat. Yeah. yeah. I mean that you know how to work hard, but you think that we all just we worked hard but we worked mindless. Well, I think things have just changed and I don't think that the older generation is willing to accept that yet and I don't think they're willing to embrace it. And I'll give you an example. I've talked about a little bit about this on the podcast before. You know, Collins, my son, he's 17. He 
he watches this guy on YouTube. He follows his videos and it's, it's a gamer who streams videos. So I, I went into his room one day and was like, why, why do you like this guy? He's like, I don't know. I just like the commentary. I mean, I just like to, and he's fun to watch. I was like, well, how many subscribers does he have? I think at that point, what we, we just discussed this, it was seven or 9 million at that point, <laughs> 7 million. Uh, now he has what? 13, 14. And he has a second channel that has 8 million. And his third channel talking, has four. Talking to the microphone. So his first channel has 14 million now. And then he's got 7 million on his second channel. And then he's got about two on his third. Okay. So the point is, when I graduated in 2004, I would ask people, you know, what do you, what do you plan on doing when you graduate? And a lot, not always, but a lot more often than not, I got a question or the answer, I want to be a professional gamer. And, and, and granted, I had a lot of friends that were gamers, but I, I always thought that was so stupid. I was like, well, good luck with you and your life. Um, what happened, though, is, yeah, I thought that was a stupid thing. <laughs> I thought that was a stupid thing to, for them to say, and I thought, you know, you're going to waste your life. Well, now this kid's 22 years old, and he's making more money than you and I combined, right. and probably more money than we'll ever make combined. Right. And he's a professional gamer. That's what he does. And so I think what's missing is that, you know, corporations, it used to be you would, you would work forever. You'd, you know, you'd get a job, you'd work for 40 years. And then uh, after 40 years, you'd retire and you'd go sit margaritas on the beach. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was kind of the, that was the dream. dream. Now you can be a 16 year old kid. You don't, not even 16. There's kids that are seven, eight, and they're YouTube stars because they've got something that someone's connecting to online. And so the model has changed. And in order for business to keep up and continue to, if you want people to work hard for you and you want people to work hard for your company and your organization, you have to show them more. You have to show them more value than what they were getting in the past because that's what's changed. And I think that a lot of companies are, are they don't want to make that change because they, they don't understand they it. They don't understand it. Yeah. They don't understand it. But there has to be a place in the world where we all dwell you know what I mean? There has to be a way that we all dwell together. And I hate that this generation gap thing. I mean, that's an old term, but I truly see it. I mean, I am devastated that there are Christian women that have been in the church all their lives that that are not at a point or not, not at a, at a maturity point or an emotional point or a a Christian maturity point to invest in younger women when younger women want it. And, and I think because that is what, what has filled the church. So maybe this is thought is just occurring to me and I'm just great. That's maybe all off the cuff. We've been called, we, we call the millennial generation. It's about me. Maybe it, maybe we're wrong. And Maybe it's my generation. Oh, <laughs> perhaps. I, I think every generation blames the next generation for all the problems and issues. But you see, that's why I think when people my age are leaving the church. Because we've not been equipped, because we've just been spoon-fed. And we have not been equipped. That was a long journey to get yeah, to my point. I see where you're Are you going following mm-hmm. me now? We have not been equipped, um, and we're still looking. Yeah. We're still going, okay, well, well, now I don't even have kids, and use me, um, send me, and the soup line is great, but you know, I don't, listen, there was a local church here. Can, so, let me just, oh yeah, can I ditch a minute? Hang on to your thought, because I know it was going to be profound. There was a church here in town, 
that was just getting started. And we were a part of that. We went, we were excited about it. We loved the teaching. We were excited about it. And we were Im- immediately put on the missions committee because we had, Steve and I have a mission background at that point. Um, we'd lived in Africa with a Bible translation ministry. And we got put on the, um, the missions committee, and they were in the middle of buying some backpacks for uh, some kid, needy kids. And they were doing that, and they were looking at what is the possibility of us going international? Where will we go? How will we do it? Will we take the shotgun approach and do a lot of different things? Will we focus on one? And we were going through those exercises. And then one day I got a call from the new admin pastor who said, you know what, we're going to kind of suspend the mission committee right now, and we're going to redo some things. We'll get back to you. And I said, okay. Well, then a couple of Sundays next, we get the announcement that we're building a new building because we were meeting in a school. Mm. Growing church, yep. So all the focus, we didn't get the backpacks to the kids. We didn't get the turkeys out to the reservation. All all this um, effort went into the new building. And, you know, as a someone who had slept on hay in the Conganese rainforest at 120 degrees and 500% humidity, I wasn't impressed. So they don't have five-star hotels there? Hmm. Hmm. So the next thing is I called this guy several times, the new admin pastor. I was like, we're here. We're ready. Whatever you want. You know, we're just, you know, not wanting to let this drop. And then a couple of months later, I got a call from him that goes, hey, Laurie, we're ready to start up again. We want you to take charge of this little project we've got going on so we're going to take a bus from the church and we're going to go downtown and we're going to pass out coats to the homeless downtown but we want everybody to come to the church first because we have this red t-shirt with the name of our church printed on it and we want everybody in their t-shirts and we're going to feed everybody lunch and then we're going to go down we're going to pass out some coats and then we're all going to come back and we're going to have a snack so what I what I viewed that as was a church um, community building project as opposed to a mission project. Yeah, yeah, that's what that is. And I left because if that was not my idea of missions, mm-hmm. and so never saw. Well, I didn't leave right then, but eventually we left. We just never saw it develop beyond that, and we were, you know, once you go out and live. Even though we didn't do it for a long time, but you live in a really needy culture, mm-hmm. um, there is a desperation out there in the world. You just can't be satisfied until you're doing something about it. Yeah, you just refuse to be satisfied until you're doing something about it. Sure, and um, and I feel like the people my age, because I'm fixing to stop, and I want to go back to whatever point it was you had. Back a long time over the people our age being oh, lazy. Oh, yeah. I, know but I feel like we were spoon-fed. Get your T-shirt. Get on our bus. We'll drive you down there. We'll provide you with everything you need to feed these people or give them a coat. Then we're going to put you back on the bus. Yeah. And then we're going to go back to the church. And then we're going to have a party. We were never conditioned to sacrifice. Mm. And I think as we get to the point in life where we're ready, there's not much choices for us out there. And where some of us are too old to go on mission work. What do you mean work, by ready? Ready to, 
to sacrifice. I see. Like I don't have children. I have I have income. I have money. I'm I'm, I'm my bucket list is full. I mean, I never even had a bucket list. So you're talking about like at this point in life, basically dropping everything and going into that full time. Be it literally or by heart. Mm-hmm. Literally or just by heart. I mean, you can be retired and show up at um, the prison ministry every Wednesday and Friday night, mm-hmm. right? But if you're passionate about it and you're equipped, if you're equipped to answer prisoners' questions. So I just don't think we had been trained or prepared for this stage in life to do anything purposeful. So now we're going into the church, and we're still being spoon-fed, put on your T-shirt, We'll take you where you need to go. We'll show you what you need to do. Yeah. We'll bring you back here, and we'll make sure we have control of you. And we're all going, no thanks. Yeah. No thanks. Well, again, that goes back to what we were talking about before. In order to inspire people, to make them passionate about their job, the leader has to give up some of that control and allow them to express themselves individually. Own because it. Because own it. I mean, everybody wants to be able to contribute in a way that makes them feel good. And it doesn't matter what you do. I mean, you could be an assembly worker. You need to be able to have enough flexibility, enough um, um, freedom to think and to use your mind and apply yourself. There's There's a book I'm reading... I always say reading. I listen to a lot of audio books. Um, I just can't do audio. I work for an audio ministry, and I just can't do audio. Everybody's different. Uh, what is it? 65% of people are visual learners. Um, when I read, I can't visualize very well. Uh, I'm a visual learner for sure. Uh, so I, when I read text, I have a hard time visualizing, and that makes it difficult for me. Um, when I listen, my mind opens up, and I'm able to visualize much more. And so that's, I think, why it works so well for me. It's interesting. But it's called The Greatest Game, or Great Game. Essentially, the book is based on The Greatest Game Ever Played, and that's business. It's a business book. And that's exactly what he talks about in there as well. One of the things they've found in manufacturing, because he comes from a manufacturing background or a reengineering of uh, motors and other things of that nature, is that one of the things that they did was made sure that everybody in the company, everybody in their organization was able to think and apply that. And not only were they made uh, available, that wasn't just made available to them, they were encouraged to do so. And so when you when you open up that door and you listen to people, you know, the janitor, the uh, office administrator, the front desk clerk, the everybody, I mean, you allow everyone to express themselves you open up that ability to um, to learn from everyone. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. I wish we'd been doing it all along. Because I well, because I think my generation has been oh, a little numb. I see. Yeah. Yeah, a little numbed to really thinking outside the box. Where I I, I have a lot of issues with um, with some of the things that some colleges are teaching today in respect to our history or our nation or politics. And I know you and I are staying off politics, so that was not an invitation. Oh, we can to go uh, there. I'm okay to go into it if you no. <laughs> <laughs> But I but I just think that the church has just done a poor job of preparing us. Yeah. Is that maybe that's the bottom line? Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of work that the church could be doing. And and I think there's steps that are being made towards that. When you talk about the church, you know, really you the model has really changed, and I would agree with you that it's changed from we go there because that's the right thing to do 
to we go there because we're passionate about this and we believe it's right. Mm-hmm. And that's so much more powerful. I mean, what, you, you can even tell when you call someone on the on the phone, you know, and, and you hear a customer service representative and, and they're answering, you can tell whether they care about their job or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just got a, I got an insurance quote recently from someone who, I mean, they didn't make a lot of money from the quote, but they're, they're a sales rep. And when I called him, he said, okay, Charles, let's go through this. Um, this is what you're looking at. This is what you're going to get. Okay, does that sound good to you? I'm like, do you even care about your job? I mean, if I was on the phone, I'd be like, all right, look, we got the best deal for you ever. Here's what it is. Mm-hmm. And and I'm going to guarantee you right now, no one can beat this rate. It's incredible. I mean, you sell it. You you care about it because you, you, you're passionate, you're passionate about, about it. it. If, you, if you're not passionate about it, everyone, um, another book that I quote all the time, The War of Art. Yes, I think the it's The War of Art. The Not war? The Art of War. The War of Art. The Fantastic war? book. Number one book that I ever recommend. The War of Art. Stephen Pressfield. Have you ever seen The Legend of Bagger Vance? No. It's a golf movie. Boring. He wrote that script. The uh, War of Art. The War of Art. Check it out. You'll love it. Okay. I need to get like 50 copies in here and give them out to everybody. That'd be great. Yeah, it's really good. When was it published? Oh, a long time ago. And okay. it's only a three-hour read. It's top, super quick. Top three, top three points that you're they're still hanging out in your head uh, from the War of Art. Well, um, oh, where was it going with that? Help me remember. Where was it going? What, what was I talking about? We were talking about. Um, Sorry, I'm tired today. No, I I should have. But you, when you start talking, I let's start over. I'm going in all kinds of bunny trails. So. Okay. Um. The War of Art, I, I don't know. I lost Well, let's point. start here. Give me three major points from <laughs> The li- War of Art. I'll listen to this later or watch it later, and then I'll, I'll remember exactly what I was talking about, but it'll be too late. <laughs> That's all right. Um, the War of Art's really, really good, and he talks about resistance and one's ability to self-sabotage themselves. Um, so anytime we want to do anything that's really a project that's passionate to us, we're going to come into resistance. And it's going to be challenging and we're going to want to give up. So as a writer, one of the things that he talks about is Somerset Ma. Somerset Ma was a writer from the early 1900s. And someone asked him one time, uh, do you write when you're, do you only write when you're inspired or do you write on a schedule? He said, oh, oh, I only write when I'm inspired. Fortunately, inspiration strikes at 9 a.m. sharp every morning. <laughs> so his point was, you know, motivation and, and David Goldman, and I talked a little bit about this motivation doesn't always isn't really the starting place. Sometimes you just have to get out there and do it Amen. and then motivation will follow. Amen. And actually in my life personally, that's 90, 99% of the time I just have to get to it and it, then I feel the there's a discipline. That's what we were talking about. Energy and excitement talking about, um, what the, the church could be doing. Well, right. and the customer service reps that don't don't care. They don't care. Yeah, your guy that was doing um, insurance, and the whole time you're selling, saying that I would be, I would be the same if I were selling insurance. I realize that, and you proved that it can be exciting because you just pretended to be an exciting right. insurance. And what he says in there is everybody knows everything. I think it was him that said that. It was him or Brian Tracy. Everyone knows everything, and what he means by that is you can't really hide things. You know, if, you, if you're disappointed, if you're upset, people are going to notice. They're going to know. They might not tell you. They might not say anything, but they know. And so you have to really, that inspiration really has to come genuinely down from inside of you to really make an impact. I think of a Bible verse, out of the heart, out of the mouth come the things of the heart. Yes. 
Yeah. So true. God and, knows. And this. as a man thinketh, so is he. Can we talk about writing for a minute? Yeah, let's talk Since about you it. brought a writer So up. you've actually written... Well, I've written a ton of books, but okay. I've only had one. That was published. Published. And have you considered self-publishing on Amazon? Oh, oh, let's talk about that. Yeah, oh, but good. that wasn't what I want to talk about, Ronnie. I wanted oh. to talk about inspiration and writing, the very thing. So if there is a writer listening, because okay, flight of ideas, here we go. All right. Um, after that first book, it's the first book was a fluke. It was it was a, it should have never been published because it's the first thing I did. I did it off the cuff. I did it pure inspiration. Did it really fast, probably within four or five months. You have to read The War of Art. The, the entire thing that he talks about is really the artist, but really he's talking about a writer. And that's an analogy for other types of creative work. But okay. he really heavily talks about writers and golf. Oh, <laughs> Writers and golf. golf. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, after this, um, I want I wrote the sequel, but the sales of this book tanked. But of the first one? Of the first one. Okay. The miraculous thing with the first one was that the publisher chose it as one of their top eight books of the year. Hand flew it to Barnes and Noble in New York's buyers. And they bought it. And so 4% of writers make it that are professional, make it on a Barnes and Noble bookshelf. Wow. Right? Since there's only two Barnes and Nobles in the world. Well, and this is when there were, (laughs) this is when there were bricks and mortar and there was no Amazon. Yeah. Right. You know that Amazon's starting to open up bookstores, right? Brick like, and mortar? Yeah, brick and mortar. Like they they, what? they became so powerful that they pretty much crushed the competition just to enter back in that field now that there's no that competition. That was on purpose? Oh, I mean, of sure course, crush, crushing the competition, but they had the plan to go back into I, I don't know if they had the plan or not, but uh, Jeff Bezos is pretty, I pretty incredible. I've been hearing that, that, that the, the bookstore is over, that it is all, it is all internet and Kindle. Or ordering through the internet, but you're saying they're doing traditional brick oh, and mortar yeah. bookstores. Yeah, and it's more than just a bookstore. It's really a bookstore with Amazon products as well. Okay. So you can go in there and you can test out all the Amazon Echo devices, uh, their little screen device. I almost want to say they might have discovered what Sears didn't. Uh, yeah, Sears and Walmart. I mean, a lot of these larger, and it goes back to that same philosophy, they weren't willing to change, so they died. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they became irrelevant. And Walmart is a huge power player. And their their model was brilliant. And we keep going way off top, mm-hmm. uh, but that's all right. We're just, we're just chatting. But Walmart's model was actually based on going into areas and regions where there weren't huge right. markets. Right. So they said, no one else is going there. We can go in there and crush and we can dominate this market. And well, they, they did. Put they all did. kinds of mom and pops out. All kinds. And then once they dominated that, what did they do? They went into the big markets as well. But now they have the money. They have the ability, the capital, the understanding. All of that um, went into that strategy. It was brilliant. Mm-hmm. And then they stopped. It's like, what what has Walmart done to innovate in the last 20 years, really. I mean, I, I remember when Walmart went from Walmart to Super Walmart and we had all these grocery stores. Brilliant. It was huge. But that was really the last true innovation. When was I that? That had to be in the 90s, early 90s, maybe. Wow. That's when they started. And then they had, they bought Jet.com, which was an Amazon competitor starting to do pretty well. I haven't heard anything from Jet.com in 
five years. Well, isn't it amazing how irrelevant irrelevant people can become or industries can become because they choose not to continue and things are moving so fast all right so let me go back to self-publishing sorry if if you can't keep up we're uh, (laughs) we're going to keep jumping around our brains are too much alike for you and i to be in a conversation that's published hey this is entertaining for me all right so here's the thing this what do you think collins are you enjoying it Look, he's not even listening. Yeah, he's not. <laughs> he's asleep. Collins, did you fall asleep? <laughs> so um, Christian publishing companies are so behind. They, they, they're not keeping up. And, and even Amazon for a while had a spiritual publishing arm. Okay, so here's what happened is I wrote a fantasy that was allegorical. Now, what was the name of your did book? Did you read it? I didn't. Quest for the Life Tree. Okay. And, um, but it had adult content, Mm. not, not in a rated R, but in a spiritual, it was, it was heavy allegory, but it was fantasy. And that market is mostly men Mm. and men don't buy women writers that are writing a strong female character. Yes. I would generally agree with that. So the... The writing was good enough to get to this point to be a top eight book and be bought by Barnes & Noble, but the content wouldn't sell. So I think we sold like 600 copies. And then, um, yeah, so they're not going to pick up my second, my sequel. Mm-hmm. So I decide to go to a completely a different route and try to write for the market and get my spiritual teachings and truths in a way. And also my, my battle cry is to teach women to be brave. And this is another whole side topic of what I feel like focus on the family kind of did to the women, the female Christian mentality. I think they started out with a purpose, but something else happened. Mm. You know, I, it, it morphed into something else. And so I was out to make women brave again. Yield your swords, cut off heads, go into the dark, get on a horse, don't stop. And, and so I've not had a book published since um, because I'm trying to enter this Christian market. Um, I do have an agent, and I have gotten very close to having a published, and it's, it's very heartbreaking when you get as close as going to the board you know, you go through several rewrites, several edits, get approved by this committee, and you're like on step six and the board, the final step, and you're waiting for that answer. And the, the board says, no, we're not going to do it. And so when you say you're going to self-publish, it's interesting because my agent can't hear this, but um, I, if this book that he has out to publishers right now doesn't sell, I'm self-publishing it. Mm. And so I've, I've given it a year. Because uh, the Christian publishing market moves, I'm not kidding, that slow. It's just that slow. And so it's in the hands of several publishers that will stay there for six to nine months before they even had one of them request a manuscript. That'll be another six months until they get it read. So what, what would that time frame normally look like if you weren't in Christian media at that point? I don't know. I, but I think it's, as a rule, it all moves pretty slow. And that's where the self-publishing world um, has kind of blown the model apart, mm-hmm. but but traditional publishing companies are having a hard time figuring out 
how to move this faster because the industry is just a great big ship. And how to stay relevant. And so, all right, here's, here's for anybody that might be listening that's considering self-publishing. I was in a critique group back in Texas with four or five amazing authors. But there's two in particular I want to talk about. One of them was Connellan Cassette, who had a unique um, book to sell, a a unique um, theme to sell, which was biblical history done in fiction. Hmm. And the traditional publishing market said, Traditional Christian publishing market said they'll never sell. And um, Bethany, which is a very known, well-named publishing name in the um, Christian markets, picked her up. Um, And they are contracting on her seventh book. She's in audio in all of her books. A couple of them have gone multi-language. She is an overnight rock star. That's incredible. Like the the J.K. Rowling story. Exactly. She was denied time and time and time again, and then someone picked, and now it's Harry Potter. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you hear those stories, and you think, why why doesn't somebody, because they have these little sheets, I feel like, that does does the book match this? Does the book match? They're not thinking for themselves, right? right? And they're not looking at the market. But anyway, Connellyn, Connie, did great. Now, on the other side of the critique group, we have Tammy Gray, pastor's wife, who um, wanted to make some extra money, was passionate about writing. She's very interesting. She has a, a history in the um, armed forces. Mm. She's super cool. And so, yeah, but, but she writes, yes. Oh, man, she's a tough chick. But she writes these really pretty romances that just they don't go with her personality but she's she's she does and she be, she self published she even got picked up by Amazon's publishing company i think it's called waterfall waterfall anyway but they ended up closing that mm. but her model she said self publishing fits my lifestyle better cuz i control everything where over here connie was always sweating out deadlines rewriting copy because it didn't fit you know the the checklist for what women are reading today and um the most interesting thing in the world is that tammy as a self publisher made more money than connie in a contract. Yeah. Every writer's dream is to be in a contract by a publishing company. But Tammy was making a better career. More money, more free time, more control. Well, why is it that they want to be part of, in that contract? Because the industry says you're nobody till you are. Mm-hmm. And once you get that contract, then you've essentially made it, right? And right. that's and where then, all the rewards come from. And then all your freedom is taken away. Yeah, because now you're locked into this contract and you have to abide by their rules. Okay, I'm going to self-publish. Yeah, I We would. just decided. Stephen King, uh, you know, have you ever read his book on writing? No. Oh, he I don't read it. anything of his because I the only movie that I watched of his all the way, I watched Christine halfway through oh. and could not handle it yeah that was probably a bad start and then 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 the one cujo cujo yeah that was another bad start oh. he, sometimes his books are really really crazy like that like the tommy knockers super weird 
Uh, and then some of his books are more realistic. Like 112263 was my favorite book by him. Now, there's some gory things. You know, he talks about there's a, a character in the book. Um, this really isn't a spoiler, but the character, like, gets smashed in the head with a hammer from his dad. It's really, really crazy. But beyond that, the book is really a time travel book, and it's almost a almost a love story almost mm. um you know his, his i didn't know he would even uh, it's it's abstract love story but it's it's definitely in there um super long but great great book but he has a book that's uh, stephen king on writing is what it's called okay. and it's basically written to writers that talks about the writing process it's a really really good book even if you're not a writer i enjoyed it um one of the things that he talks about and i think it was in that book where he shares you know he he would actually create several books at once and then he would put them in a safe and then when he came up on a deadline and the publisher would say, we need a new book, he would say, I can do that, but, you know, it's it's going to stretch the time limit that I have and I'm really going to need more money. They give more money, he'd go to a safe, pull out a book <laughs> and turn it in. Meanwhile, he's continuing on with whatever he was doing before. That that allowed him to have more flexibility and creativity. Inventory. In inventory. He had inventory. He I got inventory because yeah. things haven't been being picked up. <laughs> <laughs> so I do have inventory. Well, let me tell you what I did. I got a coach. Well, I, I, hold on. Just, I okay. want to finish this point real quick. I think it goes back to um, our society and our generation. Things are different. We want less control. We want more freedom. We want more expression of thought. As younger people are growing up, that's really what they're saying. And the parents who restrict that and say, no, you follow my rules, you do it my way, it's not you, they're getting over overruled. They're, mm -hmm. they're living more stressful lives. The church that says, no, you can't do that, you must do this, they're getting um, pushed aside. The companies, the, the businesses that say, this is the way we do it, we're very rigid, this is our structure, employees don't matter, it's all about the business – they're getting pushed out because we want more freedom. We want more creativity. We want more expression. And, and eventually we're going to get it as a society. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be the only, only, not only, but one of the only jobs that are available are creative type jobs. Okay. Oh, no, I was really into that. Oh. Um, it's, it's very much like, um, that's, I think that's why, you know, entrepreneurship used to be very, you would think like guys in suits and businessmen going into a oh. meeting. I mean, women weren't even in the picture at that point in terms of the way people thought about business. Uh, now it's, it's morphed almost to where entrepreneurship is sexy. I mean, like entrepreneurs are looked at in terms of, oh, they're so, so creative and so expressive and they're risk takers. Brave. Yeah. Yeah. Brave. brave. And so mm -hmm. there's this different. They're not, they're not willing to settle. Yeah, exactly. For the, for the old model. They want more. You get a job. And really nothing's changed. It's just the perception has changed on that. And that's because that's what people want these days. That's what we as a society, we want. We want to be able to express ourselves and to share who we are. And I see that um, maybe when I haven't been able to do that in a career format, I've done it through writing. Mm. It has always so been. So that's your escape. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's, it's just been a constant is I move from one job or one facet of a job to another is I've just always, always written. And I guess it's because when I sit down with a page, that character is mine mm -hmm. and I can make her or him do say whatever I want them to. You're really going to like the war of art in that he talks about, he said uh, a lot of people go to him and they ask, doesn't it get, boring don't you feel alone locked up in an office all by yourself 
He says, no, I'm, I'm not by myself. I'm with my characters. Mm. And in fact, my characters are actually more fascinating to me than people in my real life. And then he makes the point, doesn't it kind of have to be like that? Like, don't you have to be so invested that it becomes a reality for you for so, other people to buy into it? I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell you that, um, one of the, uh, employees that worked under you that is now working under me fascinates me fascinates you, you, you can I can't, write it down. we can't talk about people no but here. you can write it down you should um, shout out your one person that commented oh hey who commented seth mccarthy my good buddy <laughs> hi <laughs> seth yeah he's he's a fan he's the uh he used to be a welder in the navy he's the one who taught me how to weld we used to hate each other more so he hated me and he had very good reasons i won't i won't go into those at the moment because I was a jerk. Uh, but we lived together for a while right after high school, uh, me and him and another buddy. And uh, I was just cruel and total. And so now he's listening to I was you. A, I was an asshole. That's what okay. I was. And, uh, but he's well, forgiven you? Well, he went you? off into the military for like 10 years. He came back. We met for lunch, and we became like really, really, like he's one of my three closest friends. Wow. Yeah. That's a great Along story. Along with the other one that we used to live with. His name is Sam Abernathy. Sam. Sam. Sam and Seth. Yep. Sam and Seth. And, and then you. we have a friend, Seth. So we have a brother and a friend named Seth. Oh, yep. the S guys. The S guys. So we shout out, go. shout out to Seth. Hi, Seth. <laughs> so um, I don't remember where we were. Oh, this person that fascinates yeah. me. Um, yeah. And I've often thought, boy, could I craft a character I around that, that guy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I crave. Um, Sometimes in the stress of a day and needing to get things done, you know, I I default to you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, you work hard, you, um, you know, my parents, you know, I, their model, you know, and I default to that. But in this writing world, I have learned to appreciate the the hard and difficult person mm-hmm. or the misunderstood person. And when I get to write, I get to dive into their motivations. And start to understand them. And become and get more understanding. So do you model a lot of your characters after real people? Mm-hmm. I sure do. I sure do. And I love it. I love it. And I warn people, when you're mistreating me. <laughs> you're going to become a character. I go, I write. So do you ever tell them, hey, this character was based off of you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But only when it's a complimentary. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe in my will or in my deathbed, I will name some names. There you go. But we we start talking about motivation and how, you know, there's a discipline to motivation. And one of the things that you said and one of the things that I've learned through, because after that first book didn't make it, I I decided, well, I have writing. I have a voice. You know, I can tell a story, but I need to learn the industry. I need to be molded by the industry, which might have been a mistake. Well, there, I mean, you have to you have to understand it. And if you want to, and that's one thing that I've learned uh, personally and professionally and in through trial and, and error and lots of error is that in order to really make a difference, you have to understand what's already there and you mm-hmm. have to understand it well before you try and change things because bef- any time before that you're just coming from a naive perspective and you don't get the respect or your own thoughts 
Yeah. Yeah. For real. You, I mean, you do, and you, you think that you understand how it works and what the, the problems are, but you really don't. Right. And so when you get to that place where you, where you truly do understand and, and now you, you have the ability to change things, that's when you're ready. And Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs, I mean, arguably the best CEO to ever be born had that same issue. Him, he hired John Scully, which was from, I think, PepsiCo. He was the CEO of PepsiCo. And Steve said, look, I'm not ready to be CEO. So we need to hire someone from the outside. So he, he found John Scully. They really clicked. They connected. And then later on, John Scully and him actually bashed, you know, butted course, heads. And, and John Scully went to the board and pushed Steve Jobs out of Apple. And so he left Apple. Steve Jobs, the founder, he wasn't ready. He was naive at that point. Even though he had started the company, he truly didn't understand what it took to make it into a great company. Now, years later, he came back after running Next Computers and Pixar Animation, but and, and he was fantastic, but he was ready at that point, and he truly had the right understanding of the, the culture. Uh, yeah, I, I think I kind of discovered that, you know, and I... And I've let it mold me, and I've let it change me a little bit. And I'm, you know, if I go back to the, if I go to a self-publishing arm, that, or way, or method, or avenue, I'll probably revert back to the things that I'm, re- you know, I'm really excited about writing because you know I've tried to change some of what I do to match with what's selling in the market right right now. So I hired a coach. And I've worked with this coach for a couple of years, and and by submitting um, and getting close to being published, I was able to lure in an agent, and I have an have an agent, and he's very critical. And I joined this critique group with these girls, and we we just sit and tear each other to shreds. And you get over, you get over be feeling personal. Because you do, you create create these characters out of heart and passion, and this is this is what we do to feel passionate. You know, when we're stuck in jobs or whatever, and then someone says they just go, "This person isn't even realistic," or "This person wouldn't have said that," or "What you've told me about this character," and you're, it's just, it's like they're they're stabbing your child, mm-hmm. and or they're slaying your darlings, you know. And um, but what I've learned and I wanted to say this to anyone that would ever want to write, is um, you, t- you take the criticism, um, you learn from it, and you get back in the ring. Yeah. And you battle it out again. You take the criticism, you go home, you cry, you tell your spouse how horrible these people are and you're never going back, and you go back in. You get back up on the horse. You do, and you just don't stop. Mm-hmm. And I had to decide if I never sell a book again, um, would I keep writing? Why do I write? Do I write because I want to sell a book? Do I write because this is a career I want? Do I write because I want to be an author? Or do I write because I need it? I write because I need it. Mm. So at this point... It's therapy for you. It, it's just, yeah, it's that outlet. It's that passion. And so you just, you have to get thick-skinned if you're going to get out in the industry. Really, any industry. If you're going to do any kind of work that takes creative discretion you have to have that kind of uh, and again the war of art um he talks about that he wrote a script it's called king uh king kong lives it was him and another guy and he's in his 40s at this point and you know they they were thinking hey this place is or this is this is going to be a great movie it's going to sell out they even told their friends hey everybody get there early because the place is going to sell out no one showed up what 
And then he, he drove to a theater outside of town just to see if it was just in that area. And he said, Hey, what's, uh, what's going on when King Kong lives? And the guy at the ticket counter said, miss it, man. It sucks. He's like, I was crushed. I was crushed because he put all his work, all his effort, all his time, his energy into that. And it was a total fail. But later on, he ended up publishing the legend, legend of Bagger Vance, the war of art, which is one of the greatest books ever. It really is. I mean, it's, it's, it's probably sold well, what would attract you to read something that was geared for writers it's, and golf? It's really more geared towards creative professionals or creative people. And the analogies that are used are, are heavily based in golf. So at the time, I'm sure this was before Tiger Woods, you know, was... Uh, Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods, as we know him these days. But he was really a role model in the book. Oh, uh, oh okay. And and Stephen Pressfield is really passionate about golf. So he talks about something that's passionate to him to really express these ideas. But even that work of art, The War of Art, he said he had a hard time. Resi- the way he phrases it, and I've read it so many times I can almost quote it. Um, Resistance almost beat me when I wrote this book. What he goes into it is to say he felt like it was inappropriate of him to be talking about these principles so forward and so um, so much like he knew everything about them. Plus, he's not a writer, that, that style of writer. So really the pro- appropriate thing to do was to actually write a, a fiction novel that would incorporate some of these principles, principles. into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he had to just work past that and get over that concept so that he could create this book. And the book ended up being his greatest work. Uh, I'm sure. So yeah. overcoming himself. Overcoming himself. And that's right? what the whole thing is about. Right? Overcome the, yourself. The third part's a little weird. He goes into muses and you know spirits and stuff, um, which you, know, you can interpret that the way you want to. I interpret it you know, in the way I wanted to. And it really didn't resonate with me, the third part of it. Um, but the first two, what is resistance and how to beat resistance? Um, Do you golf? No. I, I Every once in a while I go to the driving range and I, I hit some balls, but that's just for fun. What no. do you do? What do you do for passion? Hmm. What's your outlet? Um, marketing. No. Yeah. No. What? That's work. But but work is fun to me. I, I enjoy the principle, the strategy of marketing. So what do you do for release? Oh my goodness, I have way too many hobbies. So oh okay. Uh, I weld. Uh, <sighs> I like to I like to build things. I like to fix things. You sharpen knives. I sharpen knives, uh, and I've gotten really really good at that. Really? I've got way too much equipment. I like fishing, so I do fly fishing, regular oh. fishing. I hunt. I like to shoot. I have. A ton of reloading gear, so I like to reload um, ammunition, reload bullets. Um, you just like to reload? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 probably the most therapeutic thing I've ever done, wow. ever. Yeah, it's really fun. What is? What do you? I don't understand. Oh. You just reload it, and you shoot them out, so you can just reload again. That's it. Yeah. So you take the you take the brass case, right? And it could be you know maybe you bought them fresh, so they're they're brand new, they've never been used, or you can take the ones that you've you've shot before. Uh, so let's let's take that route, the ones that you've shot before. So you take these these casings and you run them through what's called a press. So it's got a pull down system and it runs them through what's called a die. And this die basically just makes them uniform again because when the when the bullets expelled, you know the case kind of expands like that. So this makes sure that the case is all uniform again. After that, you want to put a primer in there and use the same press but a different die. 
you put a primer in there and that's this little, it's a little disc basically. It's a metal disc, but it's an explosive. So if you were to hit it, it would explode. And that's what actually creates the explosion within the case that ignites the gunpowder that makes the bullet leave the firearm. So you're repurposing bullets? No, no, you use, um, so, so you take this case, you put the primer in, you put gunpowder in a certain amount, and then uh, you seat the bullet, a new bullet in there, and you crimp it all together and you have a final bullet. Mm-hmm. And then you shoot it and you keep your case and you repeat that process. The next step to that would be creating your own bullets because they're, they're lead. Uh, so I started creating my own bullets using a bullet mold. So I actually melt down the lead in this little pot that I have. Um, pour that into, uh, a, what are they called? The, a mold, a bullet mold. And then you have you have a bullet and that's it. Charles, well, how would you get interested in this? Uh, I think just by sheer luck. Um, my Actually, it was my wife. My wife introduced me to that world. She told me about what it was all about. And from there, I just kind of took it on. I, I'm very curious with everything. That's why the podcast is so good for me. I'm very curious to understand other people's story. I like listening. I like learning. Um, I'm probably not the best listener. I'm a really good talker, but not the best listener. So this is a discipline for me in terms of trying to stay focused. I like meditation. I really love hot yoga right now. That's super fun. I love weightlifting. So way, way too many. Um, There's not, if you're working as hard as you are, how many, how many jobs? Do, I mean, you have. So when I, when I worked at Faith Comes By Hearing, I was going, I was working full time, um, you know, and I, I went up the ranks in, mm-hmm. in order to become director level. Uh, I hired a team at that point. At the same time, I was actually running a business, an Amazon based business where I would go and buy, buy and resell items that I'd purchased. Mm-hmm. My model, because I like traveling, was a little different from what other people do on Amazon. So there's two ways to do it. You can, well, there's, there's a few, but there's two primary ways. One is you can source products from like China and create a brand around it and then sell that on Amazon. The other way is you go and you buy retail items and you sell those online. Resell them. So a good example, a friend of mine, this is where I heard about it. Um, he went to a store called Hastings. Hastings is now I gone. remember. But here I did in, a book signing here in Albuquerque, you know, our weather is pretty consistent. I've never seen a tornado here. I've never seen any kind of major uh, natural things of that nature. But at Hastings, they were selling these weather radios, which are designed to alert you when there's a tornado coming. So they had these weather radios that were like $40, $50 a piece. Well, they clearanced them out for $3 a piece because we're in New Mexico and they weren't selling so he bought all those and then sold them on Amazon and he made $40, $50 a piece because people in Florida, you know, around the, mm-hmm. the coast, they were buying these items. So I thought, hey, that's something I can do. Well, my, the first thing I did is I went and I bought a book. It was a um, Fromm's Travel Guide. I bought it from a Goodwill store, 50 cents. I sold it online, $75. I said, hey, this is going to work. So... Um, my model for that was, okay, there's only so many stores here locally. I like to travel. How about I take trips? So I'll go to Arizona. I'll go to California. I've been to St. Louis, all over the United States. Um, buy a whole bunch of stuff there as much as I can source locally. Take it back um, to my hotel room. Actually pack it, package it up in big boxes and ship it directly from the hotel to Amazon. They store it all in the warehouse. I fly home with nothing but my suitcase and I'm making money while, while that's all happening. So, so you uh, don't have to take the picture, put it no, on. No, they have everything. Wow. Yeah. 
So I was working full time. I was managing this business and three, I think four years ago, I actually made double on the business what I was making at my job. Uh, I was actually going to school full time as well. Studying. Full time. Um, sports and health sciences. <laughs> Again, I'm very curious. You're a renaissance man. I I enjoy I enjoy learning new stuff. And if there's things that I can learn there, that piques my curiosity and makes me want to get into it. And then I like to learn everything I can about it and then try and execute it as well as I can. Um, I get bored quickly. So it's, you know, one thing is, is too hard to. So that's, that's why I have so many hobbies. So are you still doing the Amazon thing now? No. Uh, I took my last trip this year. Uh, it was actually the worst trip I'd ever taken. The only time I'd ever taken a loss, and it was a, a bad one. Yeah, it wasn't very good, um, which is all right. I mean, I, I'm always prepared for that. Um, but, yeah, it just it wasn't a very good trip. And, uh, you know, a lot of the policies have changed. So a lot of the fees have changed. Um, That's what I hear. I mean, I I used to be able to buy just about everything. Like there was no toy that I couldn't sell. Um, Now, you know, there's so many restrictions. You have to be an authorized reseller. For example, Samsung. You know, if you want to sell on Amazon, you have to be an authorized retailer. So you could find these $400 headphones for 50 bucks, but you really can't do anything with them on Amazon. Mm. And I don't like eBay. I don't like managing a whole bunch of inventory, having shelves. Um, So that's... My brother-in-law was into um, clothing, buying vintage clothing. Mm. And the rule, the same thing, rules. He got out eventually, but he did it for years and made a living of reselling clothes and shipping them out. But, okay, so this goes back to, though, so you're not doing Amazon now, so you're doing your marketing. Tell me about that because you've got all these hobbies. Yeah, so. And so are you just marketing now, contract, consulting? So my school program's on hold. I have 11 classes left. Um, I was actually heading towards a degree or a path in chiropractic. Um, But that's, the the school, the program is officially on hold right now, but I I doubt I'll ever go back to that. Um, So I was one class away from um, qualifying for chiropractic school, 11 classes Mm. from graduating with a degree in sports and health sciences because I love fitness. I love learning about the body. I love how all that nutrition, all that stuff's very interesting to me as well. Um, So programs on hold, uh, no full-time job anymore. So I have essentially my business to focus on and I have this, the podcast. Okay. Um, The podcast, and we want to, you want to talk about that a little bit and understand what my strategy is here. Uh So I'll share that and I'll share that with everyone. You know, I, I firmly believe um, there's a lot of other people who have kind of went on this path before us on pretty much anything we want to do. And so I like to learn from that. And that comes back to that naiveness. You know, I, I really, I'm very naive in this area. So I try and model, figure out someone who's doing it really well and model after them as best as I can. So I, I listen to and I watch a lot of Joe Rogan's podcasts on YouTube, and I love his podcast. I don't always agree with his ideas, but I, I really love the way he expresses it, and I love the setup. So I modeled this somewhat based off of how he does his podcast. Of course, he's got you know, way more money than I do, so his is a nicer setup. But uh, this is modeled very much similar to that in a long-form discussion where I have a guest, and we, we go through ideas and topics together. Um, the strategy is you take, you know, this long form video, which is ours is going to be about two hours. Um, there's really no draw for people to watch this unless they know who I am or they know who you are. 
So right now there won't be a lot of people that are, are subscribing unless they've found this somehow. And, and I think we have 18 subscribers on YouTube at the moment. So Congratulations. Thank you. Um, so the model is we take this long form video and we chop it into segments. So maybe there's, and so Collins is actually over there taking notes right now, timestamps, and he's tracking as we're talking what we're talking about. And so we'll chop those up into smaller videos and then we'll put a very specific title with those videos so that, you know, um, maybe one of them, I'll just throw out a, a fictitious name. Maybe one of them is what's wrong with the church today. Mm-hmm. You know, that might be a title that we'll put on YouTube video. Well, someone who might not necessarily watch this podcast will watch that video. And maybe, I don't know, let's say a hundred people watch that video. Well, then that's that many more people that are starting to become more aware of this podcast. But each time, you know, for this two hour segment, we've probably went through 10 different topics. We might end up with 10 different videos. Okay. I have a question. Okay. Okay. I think I already know the answer, but it's a teaching moment for me. Um, in, in preparation for a, a book, uh, being picked up by a publishing company, I needed to build a platform. Sure. Right. So I've got a website, but if I don't have anything to sell or, you know, so I occasionally will post things on it. I'm really, really inconsistent with it. And I know I break all the rules by doing that, but, um, I got very passionate about something one day, um, biblically got got all my feathers all riled up, and I did a quick um, under-10-minute video, me just talking to the camera. And in 48 hours, I had 3,000 views. Dang. Right? Right? So I went, oh, maybe I should do another. And so um, I was doing one a week, and I actually was getting emails because I put not my personal email but my book email out and people got some people commenting writing even people finding me on Facebook and commenting and I was just like oh this is fantastic well then something in life happened or I went on an extra long journey and I went like six weeks without posting next video flatlined yep so I was like did I break trust with my viewers? I don't know that it's trust. You probably ran into the algorithm. So that's something else as well as, you know, Facebook, Google, they're all very smart. With machine learning, they're starting to learn what what's really good and what's not in terms of what people are going to enjoy. Most of the time they get it right. And so, you know, if, if for example, if you were to go and post 10 videos right away, they're probably, their algorithm is probably going to say, hey, this doesn't look very good. It doesn't look like high quality content. So we're actually going to let that not really promote that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it might not show up in people's feeds. Even if you're subscribed to this channel, for example, on YouTube, um, and we're not consistent with it, or Google determines that you just don't enjoy this content, you're not going to see it in your feed, even if you've subscribed. And so you have all these algorithms to get past, but then you also have people's behavior. I mean, it's just like, just like what we were talking about earlier with fitness and other things. If you're consistent about it, um, that becomes to develop, that starts to develop habits and that's the way people are as well. So, you know, I watch Joe Rogan's videos all the time, but he's got like, he's got like 1,400 podcasts or something of that nature at this point. I mean, that's consistency. He's been doing it since I think 2009 and he does that same thing where he chops up the videos and makes it in segments. So you take, you know, he's got these, this, 
1400 podcasts multiplied by 10 videos per podcast, perhaps, or, you know, his are mostly three hours long. Wow. Um, that's a lot of videos that he's putting out there. That's very consistent. It's very likely that I'm going to come across something of his that sparks my interest versus if he was not as consistent with it, like, Oh, watch that later. I'm not really that interested. So I think that's, how do you make money on that by advertisement? Yeah. So there's, uh, Three ways uh, that that I'm aware of and that I'm I'm working on. One is monetizing the videos themselves. So it, it ends up being about I think it's two dollars per thousand views on the video. That's what generally speaking you'll get from YouTube once you can monetize. I can't yet because I don't have enough of a an audience um, yet. But once you can, then you can monetize them that way. The other and then thing, they sell advertising on your on your space well yeah so they they put videos around your video okay and so that's how they they make money and then you make money from that they watch this ad skip this ad that's thing. it yep. okay and if you have a youtube red like i do or i'm sorry it's no longer youtube red it's youtube premium like i do you don't ever see ads so if i watch a video that's monetized they actually just get a portion of what i pay to youtube premium so that's how that's got how it, it. The second way is through sponsorships. So I'm actually, I'm about to talk to someone locally about doing a local sponsorship and I'm going to call it an early bird special. You know, right now I don't have a lot of views. I don't have a lot of an audience built, but we're going to get there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, right now, if they want to get in, it's going to be cheaper than it will, you know, 20, 30 videos from now. When it's you're a major cheap. hit. Exactly. A rock star. So the idea is that they, they pay for a certain amount of videos in advance, and no matter how many views that gets, whatever that ends up being, they pay that amount regardless. Wow. So they become a sponsor. So it'll be a lower, you know, it won't be tremendously high, but it's not going to be cheap either. It's going to be a, a, a longer deal. The third way is is by doing affiliate programs. So I bought this pen on Amazon. Um, I can't even remember what it's called, but I bought, oh, there it is. An inner gel, liquid gel ink pen. I think it was $4 that I paid for it on Amazon. So if I were to talk about this this pen and say, hey, this is the great, which it's not, but if I were to say this is the greatest pen I've ever used, um, a link is in the description. It's an affiliate link. Go there and buy it. You click on this link and you buy this pen, I get anywhere from 4 to 10% commission on this pen. But here's the great thing. You go to Amazon, you're like, no, you know what? I think that pen sucks and I don't want it. But hey, I need to get a new microphone. You go and buy that microphone instead. Guess what? I get four to ten percent commission because they can track how they came through. Oh yeah, through your link. Yep, for twenty four wow. hours, as long as they don't click on other affiliate links. For twenty four hours. For twenty four hours, and then it goes away. Mm-hmm. Wow. So whatever that they sounds buy tough. Um, it depends on you know I'm very opinionated, so like I'm I'm willing to say this pen sucks, but I love this iPhone. Uh, Do you have an iWatch? No, yeah, Apple, Apple Watch. Watch. Yeah, it's actually beeping at me at the moment, telling me, hey, it's time to wrap this up. We'll do that in a minute. Are you kidding me? It's 518 right now. Are you kidding me? We just didn't, we just, I know, just we didn't touch on anything really super interesting yet. We wanted to talk about some other stuff. Wow. Um, Yeah, the Apple Watch is, is fantastic for me. I wanted something that was waterproof. So this is, I mean, I can dunk it underwater, I can swim with it, it's not going to hurt it at all. Um, I hate bulky watches, so I actually bought the Samsung Gear S3, and it was too big for me. And I'm not a small guy, so Aaron actually mm-hmm. bought that watch from me. Okay. Um, so that's the one he uses. It's a great watch. It was just too bulky for me, and it got caught on everything. 
This one's smooth. It doesn't get caught on things. It's but very you, comfortable to wear. You said really nobody does it as good as Apple. Um, yeah, I think that the the engineering that they put into their products is is really good. Well, I've been missing mostly a lot of meetings because I I cannot carry. It's just rude to me to carry a phone into a meeting. That's why I bought this actually okay. because I was managing the team. And I like to have one-on-one meetings with people. And generally, they were about an hour long. And what I hate doing is, is uh, right. let me look or at the clock. This. Yeah, yeah. Or let me let me see what time it is. Let me see what time. And so that that felt to me rude to do to them. And so I said, hey, I want a way of reminding myself without them really being aware that I'm that it's time to wrap things up. Right. So I bought this, and it has it basically feels like it's tapping you when the alarm goes off. Yeah, I have a Fitbit. And okay. that's what it does. So same thing. Yeah. But I, I'm, I'm telling my husband, I've got to get one because I need that. Drop my hands in my lap. Yep. And look at the time or if or well, a, a meeting reminder come up. How do you, how do you cancel out the meetings on that? Like if oh, it's, I don't if use it's this. Tap, if I it, can't. If it was tapping you, how would you stop it? I tap it. Oh, you tap it and it stops. Okay. That's, that's why I like about this is you just put your hand on top of it and, and it, it stops. stops. But. I know they're about $600. No, no. Uh, this one was, at the time, it was like 350 or something. What? And I think this this is the Series 3, and they're on Series 4. Or it's Series 2, and they're on Series 3. One of those two. Anyway, I have one generation behind. And I bought it when the new generation came out because they all, all, all the old generation went on sale. So... Um, retail was three something. I ended up paying two ninety or something okay. from Target. I think I could do that. They're worth it. I think they're worth it. I, I, I can't say I love everything about it. There's a lot of things that aren't very great about it too, um, but most of it, it it works the way it's supposed to. And I'm, I'm my happy. friend Susan has one, and she gets her text messages on it. Oh yeah, right? it tells her when somebody's calling, so she can always. Just see if it's an emergency. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have these these little deals here. So you can see I have three messages yeah. waiting for me. I can check my heartbeat. So if you start uh, <laughs> laying into me or something, you know, my heart starts pounding. I, I, can, can, like, I can tell what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> um, the newer ones actually have uh, amazing health benefits, especially if you have heart issues, things of that nature. Um, th- that really doesn't interest me at all. But for apparently Apple's found through marketing research that there's enough people out there that do care. Yeah. Health is, is kind of a fad right now. Well, I've enjoyed well, this. Me too. Thanks, Lori. And um, how can people find you? So your book is called? Quest for the Life Tree, but that publishing company is belly up. Oh, and so, so the book is no more? The book is no more. I have the files, and my plan is one day to go back in. Now that I've been through all this training, I've been to multiple conferences, I have a coach, I took classes, I plan to rewrite it. Okay. And so maybe one day in the future it'll be back and on And are the you still doing your blog? Um, Some. <laughs> And what, what's that, that job that I took at Faith Comes by Hearing is a little consuming. I, I'm writing, but I'm a writing at home for Faith Comes by Hearing on, at night, trying to get some things, you know, caught up. Yeah. We'll say that. We'll say <laughs> that. Enough. Just trying to, yeah, keep keep on top. But um, blogging, I don't enjoy. Oh. I enjoy the whole big fiction story. Check out Seth Godin's blog. Seth Godin. Seth Godin. And he, he's very um, diligent on writing. He makes sure that he writes every day. 
but a lot of his posts are 100 words, 200 words, very short. They're just observations, but it keeps him mentally sharp and it keeps him focused on learning. Yeah, my coach says 500 words a day, Depends but I'm on, not doing that. I yeah. haven't done that in two months. Yeah, and I think that's that's the advice that we give in the fitness world is, hey, you need to, you know, you're you're too fat, so you need to go out and you need to exercise and and eat less. Well, yeah, duh, but, you know, that's not quite so easy as it sounds. So the, the, the starting place is not, you know, perfection. It's how do we get to the next step so that we can start making. I love a quote I saw the other day. Um, it's all about progress, not perfection. Mm. Or strive for progress, not I perfection. I like that. I like and that. And it's the same thing yeah, with everything we do. No, nobody can reach perfection. Yeah, so start writing 50 words a day. Okay. Yeah, Deal. Because that's easy. Yeah. Deal. All right. Thanks, Charles. Lori, thanks so much. Right. And uh, to everyone, thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you later.